Yo soy Matt Booker. Yo soy Dave Laird. Yo soy Nicolás Jacobone y bienvenidos a La Gran Concavidad. All right. So as you heard, we are now live with episode 20, is this 22 or 23, Matt? 22. 22. Awesome. And we're joined by Nicolas Giacoboni. Nico, thank you so much for coming on. Welcome to the show, man. No, sure. Thank you for pronouncing my last name correctly. Did it I get it right? Pretty, okay. It's a, had a pretty lot of hard, it's a pretty hard thing to do. <laughs> had a lot of anxiety this week uh, about making sure I get my pronunciations right. <laughs> it's pretty, it's amazing. Right on, cool. Well, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, to give people a bit of a bit of background about who who you are, you are a screenwriter, uh, primarily. Would that be the the best way to describe what you do? Um, uh, let's say that that's producer, that, screenwriter. That's how I make my living, but <laughs> I, I I spend more time writing literature than than. Oh, good screenwriting, but but in Spanish, and you know it's. Awesome. Well, you've come to the right place then. We like to talk about literature here at the Great Concavity. <laughs> so projects that people are probably familiar of yours that you've worked on are you were uh, one of the co-writers of Birdman, uh, starring Michael Keaton and, an, and a whole range of excellent cast. Uh, you were a producer on The Revenant, and you also uh, worked on the films Beautiful and The Last Elvis. Is that all? Did we get that all set? Yeah, perfect. Awesome. And uh, you've got a current project that you're working on right now as well? Yeah, I'm. I just finished writing the first season of a TV series um, that is going to be produced next year. So I, ha- I have been here in New York for two years. Oh, awesome! That's great. Doing that, it was the most painful experience <laughs> of my life. Oh, really? <laughs> Can you tell us so, a little bit about it? Like, what what was so painful about it? I mean, it's in many levels. I mean, first of all, I, I never and I, I co-wrote. The whole ten episodes with with Alex Dinelaris, which is uh, my writing partner. We work in Berman together, and he's mm-hmm. he's a playwright and a fantastic writer from 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 New York. Um, and it was like it's never ending. I mean, it's so much work. Yeah. Uh, it's it's I don't know. And and for me, also doing it in English, you know, that I, I always say it's like for me, it's like driving a car with a broken. Handbrake, something like that. I don't so you you move forward, but you're always stuck at the same time. And um, but I mean, it was a very interesting experience. Uh, yeah. And I don't know. I mean, uh, let, let's so, uh, let's back up. I want to back up to the very beginning about yeah. how how you became a writer. T- tell us your background. Your grandfather was a filmmaker, correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's did you. Was, you did you grow yeah. up on set? Like, tell us, did you, were you inspired by his films? Or did you find them like, uh, it was kind of like no one talked about it? Or what? <laughs> I mean, was he the to James be completely honest. Of your family? <laughs> <laughs> he, was, he was a huge director, but not necessarily for the right reasons. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> he's, he, he was kind of like an Ed Woods from Argentina. He's like John Waters, <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he... I don't like his movies. I, he wasn't prepared. He was one of those. He was like a force machine, you know, one of those persons that just do stuff. And he he started working as an extra. He wanted to be an actor, and mm. 
and he seduced the the daughter of the owner of the studio, which Whoa, was spicy. my grandmother, <laughs> and, and he, he got some a few leading roles, and then he made some good movies as an actor, and then when he started directing, he 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 was inspired by you know the 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 movies from Italy in the fifties and sixties, you know, where, where you usually have this sort of like uh, voluptuous woman uh, <laughs> as the main character. And, and, and he tried to do the same with this uh, Argentinian model. And he, he did a, a bunch of films that are horrible. Uh, <laughs> he, no, I mean, it's, it's amazing because he wrote <laughs> the films. He, he just, he typed with two fingers, like the whole screenplay one night. Oh, wow. Uh, he composed the, the music. He, he'll hire like a composer and whistle the, the tunes. <laughs> and he put his name as the very technical work <laughs> as the composer. Um, he was a loving man. He was completely unprepared for what he was doing. I mean, he's sort of the opposite of what I do. I mean, I'm an obsessive and I, I, I doubt about everything before doing anything. Um, but, it sounds pretty Wallacean, I think. But the thing, the, the final thing that I would say is that he fought a lot against censorship. He, he, mm. there, were, there were some laws that were changed because of of what he did in his movies, and and I don't know. I think that's that's enough for one life. Hmm. I mean, that sounds to me like he falls on the the entertainment side of the spectrum, right? Pure, you know that. In Birdman, where you've got this side of the business that's all commercial entertainment, right? They don't really care about literature. They don't care about art. They just care about what people want, which is, like you're saying, the Marilyn Monroe, the big voluptuous woman, the action scene, the Ed Wood, you know, the, the this yeah. action. And then, but how did you come out of that family? I guess is my question of like, how did you come out of there? I mean, I, I was very young. When, 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 when I mean, he, he died. Man. Yeah, he died when, when I was six years, seven years old. Um, he was quite a character. I mean, he, I think that my mother suffered the most. Right. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I know the stories and I, but, but the truth is that I couldn't, I don't know, experience him much. And, um, so but, but but I listen a lot to the team that he worked with, of the, all the, the people, and how much they loved him and and everything. But but the truth is is yeah, I mean they they had this idea that the commercial aspect was the the, the important part. You know, like how many tickets did you right. did you sell? That that's the that's the reference of a good movie. And I think that's mm-hmm. the thing that I don't share. And it's tricky and it's <laughs> it's basically bullshit. Right. <laughs> so when when. What age were you when you decided that you really wanted to study literature and you fell in love with literature? Mm, I was I was older. I, I was I was old. I would say. I mean, I I was between literature and music. I leaned toward music. I studied music for one year and a half. When I finished high school, like I went into the music school, and mm. and suddenly I realized that. I mean, I had these seven-year-old kids playing guitar like crazy next to me, <laughs> and I was already, I looked exactly like as, like as I look now. I was, you know, like six foot and beard, and <laughs> uh, and I felt, I felt that it was, I wasn't necessary. And 
And I, I started playing with a band and suddenly composing songs, and I realized that I, I spent more time writing lyrics than <laughs> focusing <laughs> on the melody. And oh, yeah, it yeah. It wasn't, a, it wasn't the usual. Like, I read a lot my whole life, but just, yeah, for, for fun. Mm. Uh, and, and suddenly the truth is that I didn't know what I wanted to do. And, and I went to, to study literature because, mm. because that. I mean, I, I wanted to try to write and to learn how to, to write. And the problem was that in Argentina, uh, if you study literature in Argentina, it's not like here that you have the workshops where, where they teach you how to write, basically. Right. So it's more, it's more a career that is oriented in becoming a professor, a literary professor. And right. So I not studied necessarily for, a creative writer yourself. No, no, yeah. no, not at all. And 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 truly, for me, it's it's even. Uh, I don't know if I would even recommend writers to study literature. I mean, uh, at least in those <laughs> in those because no, it's true because yeah. I feel that the place where where they put these writers, you know, like the way they talk about Homer and Dostoevsky and yeah. Cervantes, I mean, it's such a they're they're saints. So <laughs> so then, how can you sit and write? How, how, how can you try to do anything right. when you're reading these people that apparently were based were inhuman geniuses? Are canonized, which is, yeah, <laughs> yeah, which is bullshit. I mean, they're, they're, they were geniuses and they were amazing, but they just sat and drank coffee <laughs> and tried to do their best. You know? Yeah, that's a nice way to put it. <laughs> well, and there's a big there's a big debate still that in, in literature that you know maybe you can weigh in on of is it better to you know, go to university and study, go to graduate school, or is it better to go on an adventure, you know, and to go and live life or to go and get a job and, you know, engage with life and then try to write? Hmm. I mean, it's, you know, what do you it's, think? It's interesting. I don't think there is a, there's a right way to do it. Um, every time I sit with writers or, or I mean, students, um, the only thing that I say, and I feel stupid saying it, is that you have to write a lot. Mm -hmm. That yeah. you can read all the literature in the world, you can travel everywhere, you can have the best experiences ever, ever. but then when you see it in front of the blank page, you're fucked. You don't know, <laughs> you don't know what to do. You truly don't know what to do. You're lost. You, you, can, you can know... Ulysses, like mm -hmm. from, from mm -hmm. memory, and understand every word. Just you know, uh, and then when you have to do your own thing, uh, the, you, you're 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 alone, and n nobody can help you. And the only the only way to to really learn how to do it is doing it a lot and writing a lot of shit and writing things <laughs> that are horrible, and sort of grow yourself as a reader of your own work and, and understand that what you're writing is horrible and mm. try, to, try to figure it out why it's horrible. <laughs> yeah. And at the same time, it's, it's about, like, I don't know, like I, I feel that you have famous writers that had the most boring lives ever, like <laughs> Kafka, I would say, <laughs> uh, or, or you have Hemingway, <laughs> like... That he was participating in wars and yeah, yeah. just playing with bulls, <laughs> and and you, I don't know. I prefer Kafka. <laughs> or, take that lifestyle, yeah, sure. Or Borges, you know, Borges is blind, right? Mm. And the, uh, 
it's so yeah, he lived his, with his mother his whole life right, right. just eating cookies with milk <laughs> right right <laughs> writing the most amazing literature yeah, and yeah. and you know that i wanted to ask you about that is we we've talked about your grandfather who was a director uh armando bow and uh the the other influences I mean I mean what other influences in Ar Argentina you have Borges, Cortázar, uh, you know who who else did you grow up thinking like these are are people worthy of being idolized I mean maybe they were you know they were not writing when you were um, a student but what what kind of influence would did you feel like you could not escape I mean it's it's interesting because I, I don't find my biggest influences in, in the Spanish language. And uh, Borges was very important for me. Uh, there is an Argentinian writer, it's called Alberto Laiseca, that was very important for me. He, I, I don't think he was translated ever mm. into English. Um, he, he wrote in this weird style that he called uh, absurd realism. And, and it, he has an amazing novel, but the, the writers that influenced me the most were uh, Samuel Beckett, um, Thomas Bernhardt, uh, and, and Wallace, of course, mm -hmm. uh, in the last 20 years. And, um, I mean, I, I, I read a lot of things, and I, I love a lot of things, but the, the ones that I, that I go back the most... Uh, constantly close, you know. Sorry, my, my, my is, that Larry? is that Larry? Yeah. <laughs> hey, Larry. <laughs> my my wife coming is show, coming home. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I don't know. It's it's it's. I truly don't. I, I don't know if I can if I, if I can explain mm. why those are the guys. I, mm. I just those are the ones that. Yeah. It's it's weird because they are all writers, even Wallace. That when I read them the first time I, I that I felt that I had to work a lot to yeah. get into them and then once you you're there you don't want to you don't want to get out ever you don't again. Leave. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So what was what was kind of like your your backstory coming to Wallace or what was your introduction to Wallace? Um about how old were you? What were the circumstances of how you sort of started reading him? I actually I started reading him like a month before he killed himself. Uh, okay, yeah. I, I was reading Pynchon and I was in Buenos Aires and, mm -hmm. and I got, like a friend brought a, a Kindle for me as a present from, yeah. from here, from States and, and I, didn't even, I didn't know what to do with it yet. I, I couldn't, <laughs> you know, like it's the first impression, impression of the Kindle is weird. It's like you, you want to pass the pages and it doesn't work that way. And you don't know if it's a computer or a book or yeah. now, now, now I'm addicted to it. But um, I, I was looking for something. I mean, just the, the usual Googling, you know, like uh, Don De, I, I, I read a few of Don DeLillo's novels and I, and I, and I love them. And yeah, yeah. Suddenly, Wallace's name came came out. I, I read about him, and I read about Infinite Jest, and and I and I got the book in the Kindle. <laughs> Smart and, man. <laughs> yeah. Uh, actually, I never read it on page. 
I must yeah. say. I never read on paper. I, mm. I read it like 17 times. <laughs> so you haven't had the, sh- the shoulder-breaking experience of lugging it around with you? I mean, I tried and I, I realized it was stupid. I mean, it was just like, who, who cares? <laughs> just. <laughs> Our guest uh, last, on the last episode, Claire Hayes-Brady, said that she ripped her paperback in half because uh, she was traveling. So she ripped Infinite Jest in half so it was, she could lighten the load. Yeah, I mean, it's just, <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's like living with a brick. It's like suddenly yep. you're walking so, around with a brick all yeah. the time. Yeah. And you have to put it somewhere and leave it. And then you, I don't know. Be worried not to forget it. <laughs> totally. Um, but so you read Infinite Jest twenty five times. Is that what you just said? Is that, <laughs> no, is no, that no. literally or like a ballpark? <laughs> no, I'm. A, I, I think I read it complete three times and a half. Yeah. Um, but then I, I I read parts of it. Like I'm constantly reading it. Like yeah. going back to it. Just I like just having it, you know. <laughs> like every time I write, I'm reading a book that I don't like and I'm complaining, I, I go I go back to to those three guys, to Beckett and Burkhardt and Wallace and mm. and I, I mean, I don't know. They, they just force me to just uh, leave most books behind. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, yeah. it's funny you say that because my older son, his middle name is Wallace, and my younger son, oh, his-, his middle name is Beckett. And to to me, um, I'm very lucky to live in Austin where we have a lot of, you know, literary archives at the Ransom Center from Samuel Beckett and from uh, Wallace. Uh, And after I found out you were a Wallace fan, I I thought a lot about some of the pieces of Birdman. And I felt like there was a lot of, I don't know, crossover resonance with some Wallace ideas in there. And I want to just asked directly like when you were thinking of some of these ideas was that influenced by wallace and you know suicide addiction a lot of these themes came up in that script right Mm -hmm. i mean yes and no i mean i would say that um, it's never a conscious decision i mean the fact that you're reading these guys uh, it's constantly makes them you know like inspirations like uh, you cannot avoid that but at the same time it's not that you are trying to uh, transfer some of the the ideas or the or the concepts or whatever it is in them into what you're writing i'm I'm, and mostly mostly in screen in screenplays that it's it's usually it's it's a collaboration between the writer and the director, and it's it's a weird process. It has nothing to do with writing literature. It's, it's like nothing at all. I don't know why they are both called writers. Like it's a mistake. <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> mistake. Yeah, and but uh, I don't know. I would say yes. The when when Regan Keaton's character says the the the, the play is a little version, the form yes. version of so yes. That, that was I a, knew that it. Was a, yeah, that was a, <laughs> a, it's, it's 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 on your like it's pretty clear that that was sort of like a homage to the Lilo and and it's funny because I read about that from Wallace before the Lilo. I, he's I think quoting Delillo. Yeah, 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 exactly. So it was more like a Wallace uh, gift than a Delillo one, even though I know I, I knew that it belonged to the Lilo. Uh, yeah, he but, said I have. Yeah. It, he says. 
the play feels like a miniature deformed version of myself that keeps following me around, hitting me in the balls with a tiny hammer. <laughs> I love that line. That's a great line. That's a great line. Yeah, exactly. I knew that all the Wallaces and the, the, the Lilo's fan yeah. will, will get that. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, we've I, some other episode, we mentioned this John Gregory Dunn book about screenwriting called Monster where he explains the process of writing a screenplay and doing revisions and being, uh, you know, sort of on call and what, what kind of a, a mess that is. And, mm -hmm. you know, what you're describing, it sounds like that process, this is 20 years ago that book came out. It, it sounds pretty similar in that the process really hasn't changed much in Hollywood, even if you're doing something that is, you know, more independent, that is not, you know, the Avengers 4 or whatever. So, I mean, how do you think is the best way to translate, you know, ideas into screenplays? Is there a better way? I mean, I don't know. I feel that, like, let's say, like, if, if when I write literature, I mean, it's just you and you do whatever you want. I mean, that, that doesn't mean it's going to be good, but you're just in that. And I, and I always, like, I understand, you know, George Saunders, when he talks about not knowing, quoting Bartholomew or whatever, but mm. yeah, it's like it's like that uh, Flannery O'Connor line that I don't remember correctly, but she said something like, "I don't know what what I think until I read uh, read what I wrote or something like that," mm -hmm. and and that's for me the experience. It's like you're you have something, you have a character, you have a situation, whatever. You just it's all about the words on the page. Like it's there are a lot of things going on, like the music of the words, the, the, the trying to give every sentence some value, but at the same time, it's just asking questions to yourself in the page and trying to see where they take you. I mean, it's a very complex process, but it's very personal, and you're on your own, and that's it. Uh, when you write a movie, I feel that. It's it's completely different because, like the movies, is an even if the word is horrible, it's an industrial thing. Like it's even if you are writing and directing and it's doing as much as you can to control the thing, you you depend on all these people. Like you you have to be able to communicate what you wanna say to all these people. So so, so the screenplay for me is I always say that the writers that want want to show how good how good they are writing, I mean, style-wise, <laughs> in a screenplay, they're, they're stupid because it's just nobody cares. Like, the screenplay is, <laughs> is this, yeah, it's this guide for, for the piece of art to be made. Um, right. but, but so then when, when you think about that and you think that you have to collaborate with external, with other human beings, <laughs> like, mm -hmm. and you know how difficult it is to communicate. Um, so imagine how difficult it is to write something with someone else. Yeah. I think that the more you, you use these rules or techniques, even though if then you break them, you know, like, even, like going back to Aristotle you know, and the three acts and poetics and all, and all that and, mm -hmm. and action conflict and reverse and all the, those <laughs> classic rules of writing, I think they're in a way for me, at least in my experiences, they are essential um, because it helps you think really carefully what 
what you want to do, but at the same time you can communicate that with others and sort of like see clearly the skeleton of the thing so so you can then develop it in this sort of like I don't know how to call it, but collective. So usually in the in the way we I work in these three screenplays, uh, even though in, in in Beautiful and The Last Elvis I was working with with two directors, so so I did most of the writing, like the actual sitting down and writing it. Right. Uh, we 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 spent a lot of time together in a room discussing it and talking about it and making notes. So then it's it's a weird experience because you see two rights, but you have this box of backstories and arcs and you know like and plot points and yeah. a list of action conflicts and, and reverses and you then so you can be free but at the same time you have to sort of play within that world that you already created mm-hmm. so the process is is very is very different in this sense as, as, mm. as writing literature yeah i, I so don't know if that makes sense such a story so for example like if we if we were talking about the writing process on birdman um, so I believe it was a you and one other writer, and then the director Alejandro Iñárritu. Berman, yeah, yeah. In Berman, we is four of us on the credits. I mean, we. Four, okay. I work, Armando Bo is he has the same name as my grandfather. He's my cousin. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah. And we started working together in Buenos Aires a long time ago, and and we wrote together the last Elvis, and the last Elvis was the screenplay that we sent to. I mean, my my my. My path in in screenwriting is is very weird. <laughs> like it's not the usual. Like I, I went from living in a one bedroom apartment, having almost no money, <laughs> like <laughs> to write beautiful, like in two months. Like it's something wow. very. But it it all came from that. It went from we, we wrote the last Elvis, and we were trying to find money, and uh, and Armando uh, was a commercial director back then, and he he directed for commercials from for Alejandro's. Inaritus uh, company in Mexico, mm-hmm. so it's one of those things. Like we had this screenplay, what should we do? And he said, "Well, I can send it to Mexico. Maybe Alejandro reads it and can help us." <laughs> like one of those weird situations. And he read it and he liked it. And one month later, called us to say that he wanted to help us produce the last service. But then, like one month later, he called us again and say, said, "Can you come to Mexico for a day?" <laughs> <laughs> and we were so I don't know if nervous is the word we were so surprised that we didn't ask for what we just got tickets <laughs> and went to Mexico and we spent one day with him uh-huh. and and he was looking for a writer to, to work on Beautiful and so in a way like Armando and I we both sort of like went together to Beautiful so uh, we we worked with Alejandro the three of us but it was like me working with two directors mm-hmm. uh, and you know that most directors don't, they're not great typing. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but no, it was, it was great. I mean, we made a lot, we talk a lot and then I would go home and type scenes. But so then in Birdman, we, it was going to be about Broadway and, and Alejandro, knew Alex Dinelaris was a, who was a playwright back then and and he thought it would be a great idea to to 
to collaborate with him. So we came here in New York and I, and I met Alex and immediately we became friends. Mm-hmm. And he's the only writer, like writer, writer that I had collaborated with that I, that I feel it truly worked and that we became like a better version of ourselves. You know, like, <laughs> um, it's funny, I always quote, I, I always use the example of the San Antonio Spurs because... <laughs> I knew that was going to come up. <laughs> yeah. Because, like, if you see, and nobody will know what I'm talking about in, in, in the story, like, people, if they're listening to this, but, uh, <laughs> like, there is this Argentinian player in San Antonio Spurs, which is my favorite sports person in, in, the his, in history, which is called Manu Ginobili, and he's, he's an amazing player, and he was a huge star in Argentina, he was a huge star in Europe, and then when he came to the Spurs, um he had to adapt to a team that was larger than him and he had to put this, his ego in this very specific place where he had to play a lot of minutes just focusing on defense you know, or, or playing for the team. <laughs> and I always said that he became a better player because of that. And, mm. and this is sort of like the same. Like It's very weird. Like you, can, you get to the room and you have all this ego and you believe you're the best writer ever and you're sitting there <laughs> and you're with these people and basically what you have to do with these people is show them how mediocre you are, you know, like show, show, show them the thing that you never show anybody when you're writing literature because you're alone and you're just facing your own mediocrity, but you're just, you're just yourself. So you can just hit your head against the wall and deal with it. But here is, is a very unusual situation because you have to be with these people and, and just throw ideas. That yeah. is the common version of it the simple version of it and and knowing that 80 percent of what you say is going to suck (laughs) and and being able to allow other people to say that you suck in front of you (laughs) and being fine with that even though it really hurts (laughs) (laughs) and then see why that sucks and what's behind it and what's behind what's behind what's and that's what we always said like the work is you have you have an idea and now i learned that that idea is going to be bad, like almost every time. And you have to see what's behind that idea and what's behind the, the third version and the fourth version until you reach to the, to the valuable thing, you know? Mm. And that's a piece of Birdman I keep coming back to is where, you know, Riggin has this monologue against the critic, right? And it sets it up as the critic versus mm. the artist in a way. And yeah. I really, I really keep coming back to that piece because I think that, it goes to show that even if you are successful, even if you are talented or a genius, there's going to be someone else out there who can reject you. And, you know, when you were talking, it reminded me of this letter. Uh, it got some publicity earlier this year. or It's been mentioned several times, a rejection letter from Moby Dick. <laughs> and and the, the first line of it, the first line of it is just says, does it have to be a whale? You know? and, 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 and that's an that's an 1851 and 1851 oh, you know, not much has changed because there was still some producer some publisher who would have you know put in some topless mermaids and gotten rid of the whale and cut the length in half and you know put down a, a, a sidekick and a couple of other you know uh, famous stars written in and all this I mean, it just goes to show that like there's a constant struggle that none of that has really changed, but yet you're able to still put that into a successful film of that idea 
And, you know, to me, that, that collaboration idea that you were talking about, too, is a big part of what made Raymond Carver successful mm. in his collaboration with uh, Gordon Lish and his editor. And well, it's true. It's true that here in America, every time I, I read a biography of a, of a writer, like I'm always surprised with how much like writers collaborate with ed editors. Like it's not mm. it's not that common in Latin America. Um, and I, actually, actually, even screenwriting here, like right. it was like I came here uh, for Birdman, and then I stayed for the for the TV series and. Like I had to, I was forced to become a professional in a way. Like Latin America, <laughs> Latin America, everything is, everything is solved with a handshake. You know, like everything is like, yeah, let's collaborate. Let's get in a room and something great will come out of it. And it's so, and, and it can be good also, but it's so the opposite of how you, how you work here, how you see the, like even the, like, I don't remember if it was Updike or one of those writers that he would, just wear a suit and go to to an office to write every day. You know, that's amazing yeah. for me. Like that, that's incredible. <laughs> he uh, he, re he rented an office. Updike rented an office. Uh, you know, in the town. I don't know if he wore a suit every day, but he would go in. You know, leave his house every day and go to an office above a cafe and mm -hmm. write for four hours. Go down and have lunch. Come back and write for four hours, and and treated it like you're saying, like a. Like a, a nine to five job, a, a professional job. And I mean that. That sorry. Yeah. yeah. No, no, that does it. No, no, no. I mean that. That for me was. I mean, finding that even if it's a simple thing or if or it looks like an obvious thing, that for me was incredible. And 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 yeah, the Lilo that he says that he works like I don't know, like forty. I don't know. Like, more more hours that there is a day that, that right. you have for a day, he will be mm. sitting working and and I understand Wallace when he was obsessed with that, you know, like because he couldn't do right. it. Like, and 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 with Wallace, I mean, you never know. Maybe maybe I'm wrong. You probably know much more about him that, than I do. And I know that you, you met him a few a few times, Matt. And I, and I would love to hear about that eventually. But <laughs> so would I. <laughs> yeah, uh, actually. Yeah, I will stop talking right now and listen to you talk about well, that. But I, well, you know, I yeah. I do know a, a some fair bit about how he worked, and I actually think it was kind of problematic in that because he wrote journalism, right? And so when you write journalism for a, a weekly magazine, you have to turn things in; they have to get fact checked, and you have to work really closely with the editors there. And the editors are paid to kind of take your piece apart and then reassemble it. So you have to collaborate with them. And he had a series of magazine editors that he worked with very closely. Colin Harrison at Harper's being one of them. Um, you know, he he worked with this guy, Bill Tonelli, several times. He worked with a guy named Jay Jennings at Tennis Magazine. And Colin Harrison is the one who assigned Wallace to go on those trips, you know, on the cruise ship mm. uh, or on the to the state fair or um, you know Ruth Reichel. No, that was Ruth Reichel and Gourmet Magazine. Mm. Um, but that collaboration with an editor, I think it was problematic for Wallace. And it, it, if you see it the way that he dealt with therapy, right? And can you imagine Wallace going into a therapy session where he has probably read more about whatever theory yeah. the the mm. the 
therapist knows than he does. And I, I think that reflects my own experience with therapy is that if you go to someone who is not on your level, it's not going to be successful. I mean, yeah. I mean, still, I, I remember listening to Mark Costello, I think he was, like in one of mm -hmm. the New Yorker Festival, one of those videos mm -hmm. on YouTube, and, and he said something that I, I didn't read anywhere else, and I thought it was pretty interesting, that he said that, yeah, they were talking about editing, no? like how hard it was for, for Wallace to to catch it out of his, right. his pieces. <laughs> yeah. And he said something that that for Wallace was when he when he wrote, he he wasn't a methodical writer. He wasn't a professional as we were talking before. Not the, the writer that would just go to the office or every every day at eight in the morning and write four hours, then have lunch, go jogging for one hour, <laughs> then come back, write for like he will he he would write in these sort of bursts of inspiration. And and those moments, according to, to what Marco Stello said, those were the moments where he was fine, where he wasn't he he wasn't within himself, like his 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 flesh and bones self. You know, he was in, in this spiritual mind. I mean, when you write, like writing is a weird thing, like it's a sort of magical thing. Like nobody knows how to write. Like nobody knows how where it comes from. You know. I, and I think that he he would get into those stages, and and then if I if I believe that, then I can understand him. I can understand how difficult it was to throw away something that was a part of that belonged to those moments, you know, hmm. to to those moments of bliss or those moments or or even if it's painful at some time, at least it's painful in a right way, you know. Um, and he was smart enough to defend it. He could defend every cut. But like you said, there's some kind of ego involved there where you have to humble yourself and say, I don't know everything. Even my instincts I could imagine might be wrong, and I'm going to just defer to someone else on this. And I think he did get a little more mature about that as he got older. But I, I think that it's always a struggle where, like you're saying, if you're in this groove, you know, he compared it with like Roger Federer where you're mm -hmm. in this flow and you forget that you even have a body. You forget what's going on. You lose yourself yeah. and you're, you're in that state of flow. Um, you know, he has a character in the pale King uh, who gets into that flow yes. and begins to like levitate. Yeah. And that's the first scene in Birdman is really yeah, levitating. That's right, yeah. And so I, I, for me, there's a little bit of a supernatural element there mm. um, that I, I think Wallace would have really loved. Yeah. Do you guys know the the band Neutral Milk Hotel? No. I know. Jeff, yeah. Jeff Mangum, the the singer and lyricist of that band, refer, like was describing his writing process for this really iconic album in the airplane over the sea, and he referred to the the sort of the process as like as channeling. So like he didn't exactly know where the, these lyrics were coming from because they're they're very bizarre and and strange but also beautiful but he he refers to the process as, as like almost like some kind of spiritual channeling uh type thing and i think that's maybe sort of getting at, at what you guys are talking about yeah i mean for me infinite jest is like the how can you explain infinite jest what is it 
I mean, it's insane. <laughs> like, like, it makes no sense. Like, truly. Like, I love the book. It's my favorite book. Like, I, I read it all the time. But the truth is, I don't, I don't understand how he, how he was able to do that. Like, truly. Like, if you think, I, I don't know how his editor, uh, Michael Peach, could even <laughs> help him. Because it's fascinating. I mean, for, for once, you have a 1,000-page book without a lazy sentence. That's something mm-hmm. incredible. And, and maybe that's the thing that, that attracts me the most. Like, like, every time I read a page or a paragraph, like, it reminds me of how much can be going on in one meaningless instant. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. like uh, it's, it's incredible what he did. But, but I think that he, he achieved that because he was just writing. He wasn't, he wasn't being a professional writer. He was just trying to deal with something. I mean, there's something in that book, and, and maybe, maybe I'm wrong, and you can tell me, I, I, I read everything he wrote, but there's something about that book specifically that, Mm-hmm. It's like, and I listen to a lot of people talk about it, but it's very hard to explain why. Because, like, the thing that I care less about Infinite Jest is the plot. I think the plot has a lot of problems. <laughs> I think it's, I think it's fascinating in parts. I think in other parts, it's just, it's just a cartoon. Like most characters are cartoons, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, even I think that even maybe Hal and Gately. And, and and maybe Joel are the, the only characters that I can think of that are not cartoon versions of themselves. Mm. And you're reading these scenes where you have a you have Steeply, which is dressed as a woman, but he's yeah. like it makes no sense. You know, he his his teeth are pointing to different like <laughs> and he's talking to a guy in a wheelchair. And and I don't know how, and I don't know how he did it that you're reading that scene. And it's the most profound, mm-hmm. interesting thing you ever read. And it makes no sense. Like, that, that's <laughs> supposed to fail. Like, every, every, writer, every writer trying to write that will fail. It's and a freak like, of... It, you have to be a freak of nature, right? And it's just... Yeah, it's, it's, that's, that's why and I, I'm going to say that I try... I try not to read much theory about Infinite Jest, even though I, I, I read a few and there are some amazing ones. Um, but the truth is that I love that thing of the book that it has no borders, that it makes like it doesn't end. It's like this it's, it's this this world that you can get lost in, and and I think that in theory or whatever, even if they're talking about a specific subject of infinite jest, you you have to try to put it in a box and control it and you know like manipulate it and and keep it there. You know? uh, uh, and and what I like about the book is that. It's just like I read it and I read it, and every time I read it, I don't understand how he did it. Like I don't understand how how it works. I cannot I cannot find the function of it. You know, like <laughs> I cannot yeah. find the rules that governed. Well, the- and you know, I, a couple things there that I think there's a difference between the way that uh, you know Raymond Carver worked with Gordon Lish, and Gordon Lish was his editor who understood Carver, and Car he sort of cut down on a lot of unnecessary things to reveal the pure carver. And Wallace's relationship with Michael Peach, I think, is completely the opposite in that Peach understood him, but let Wallace be Wallace. And for me, the saddest part of this whole thing, of course, is that Wallace really never um, 
recaptured that same spirit, you know, never published another, another novel in his lifetime. Mm. And I, I was sort of in denial about all this. You know, I, I bought Infinite Jest shortly after it came out, read it in 1997, and I knew immediately, probably 300 pages into the book, this is my favorite book. I hadn't even, I hadn't, <laughs> even fin- yeah, I hadn't even finished the book, and I was like, this is it. This is, oh, yeah. this is what I need in my life. I had the same experience. And I was like, I'm... But can, can you explain why? No, no. It's impossible. <laughs> I don't know why. But I knew, I didn't even understand what the hell was going on. I didn't understand the plot. I didn't understand anything. But I knew 300 pages in, this is the best book that I've ever read. And I, I can't put it down. I can't stop thinking about it. And, and you I, also can't conceive of a book that could potentially be better. Well, and I couldn't, I couldn't really conceive of him writing something else along those lines you know yeah. I mean, pension you know wrote uh, cons- you know arguably a masterpiece with gravity's rainbow although although he ne- you know he wrote multiple novels after it and before yeah, it, but really you know no one would argue in any of them are on the level of gravity's rainbow so i i don't yeah. know i don't yeah. know what the argument is for i think it i think it definitely played a role in wallace's mental life that he knew he did something yeah. special with that book and it got a lot of praise and attention and really nothing else he did got that level of praise and attention except mm-hmm. for maybe the journalism stuff which he didn't consider to be you know Serious as, as yeah, yeah as equals it wasn't literature yeah yeah i mean it's true i don't know i don't know i mean i feel that pinchon is a very different writer in that sense like i feel that i still there's something about Infinite Jest that it's that even you, as you said that you don't see in his other work. Like at least I don't see it. Like there is a crack. Like there's like the book allows you to see something that behind it that you don't see in the other books. Uh, it's it's like if the book were was like a mask, you know, like a deformed autobiography or something like that. And, <laughs> and but you're allowed to see something behind it. That is fascinating, and it's impossible to to, I, to sorry, sorry to 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 the limit. There's something that you cannot explain, but it's fascinating, and there's there's this sense of weird desperation coming from it, from every character, from every sentence, and it's not the usual desperation. It's not the Thomas Bernhardt desperation, you know. Uh, it's just a weird type of desperation i don't know if it makes sense but it's impossible for me to talk like clearly about infinite chess you you hit you hit on it and i I don't want to go into it too much but we've done a little bit of this before and that a lot of it is autobiographical and that hal and mario and oren are all sides of his personality and his parents are in there and his family Mm -hmm. and his the ghosts of his whole family autobiography are in there and his his soul is in there in a really deep way that i think it it is hard to define where that is and even if you traced it out i don't know that it would reveal very much but i think that that's that's a key element where it's not you know i i associate a lot of delillo and pension with some coldness you know or some some kind of abstract removed from it mm-hmm. and i think wallace you know he went through a real spiritual crisis that i don't know either one of those guys ever went through mm. 
and you know faced death and came back from it and put himself back out on the page and i honestly i i will tell you i felt some of that in birdman and i mm. i think some of it is in the script some of it's in the portrayal a movie's a whole different thing i don't want to compare it's apples and oranges etc cetera, etc cetera, but um <laughs> no I, I mean what i can say about birdman is that even from the beginning it was a process that we were not in control of at all like it was like it started with a phone call from Alejandro saying, I have this image of a guy levitating in his, in his underwear. <laughs> and I don't know what's the story behind this. And I want to mm. make a comedy in one shot. Yeah. That, that, that's what, that, was, that was the first phone call. Like I, wow. I hung up and I was like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> what am I going to do with that? Yeah. What do you yeah. do with that? <laughs> and, and, and the truth is that we, we learned how to do it while we were doing it, like even, yeah. even writing something that will have no cuts, like in comedy, that it's all about, um, how you say, like it's all about uh, uh, timing, timing, yeah, timing, rhythm, you know, like uh, so. So we have to edit the film in the in the in the page, knowing that right. almost everything that we put there was going to be on the screen, which was terrifying in a way. And <laughs> and Alejandro didn't know how to direct that movie that he, he, he i don't know if you saw his previous films but yeah. his, it's not <laughs> comedy like was his thing. it's not like <laughs> and, that at all no yeah, yeah. exactly <laughs> and, and even the actors like the actors you, you would see like imagine that they would do like six minute takes so they would shoot like six pages in at once you know so so the so the scenes will begin somewhere like in the in the dressing room and right. with two of the characters talking and the camera will leave with one of them and mm -hmm. It, he will meet another character like uh, on the stairs or whatever, and and you will see, I don't know, like Emma Stone hiding behind a door, uh, yeah. behind yes, a door, yeah. waiting for the camera to arrive, and she was like, just begging for not, not to fuck the scene because mm -hmm. it was like five minutes of yeah of, that of continuous tape, yeah. you know, like, so you will see these famous actors and everybody suffering in a way and <laughs> learning how to do it. And I think that I, I always said that I went to see the first screening of the film, not knowing what to expect. Like I had no idea if it was going to work. Right. Like I knew that Michael Keaton was great, that the actors were great. I, yeah. I knew that he looked fantastic. Um, but the truth is that I didn't know. And, and I was so relieved. I wasn't, I wasn't happy. I didn't thought that it was a masterpiece at all. I, I was just relieved that there was, there was a there was a story there. <laughs> was, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So for the first time, I said, "Okay, like it's it makes sense in a weird way," and that was all. That that, that was the thing that gives me this sense of relief. But well, well, maybe maybe there's something up there. So like in in, in Infinite Jest, like there was something about, and I don't I don't want to compare at all. Like I, I feel yeah. like an asshole just going from <laughs> to Infinite Jest because Infinite Jest. Will probably be, I don't know. I'll, I'll do it. I'll put it on me. But, well, Infinite Jest didn't win the Oscars, I'll do so it. you got but that. I feel, on a... I feel that I feel, and I, I want to believe that that Wallace didn't know what he was doing when he wrote Infinite Jest. That he was, he had this need to do it. He was in this very specific moment of his of his life, yeah. Um he was trying to deal with himself, and at the same time, he had this huge need to belong to the. Literary world and be respected as everybody that writes has, and mm -hmm. and so it's this mixture of things. He was talking about his 
his mother and I'm sure his father and about himself and and about his fears and and he also wanted to be original and weird and I think that's probably the parts that don't work completely in the hook uh, uh, but I, I, I embraced that you know like like I, I like writing doing doing any piece of art is is embracing imperfection you know like it's just you're a human being half of you or more 80% of you suck so just deal with that like whatever you do it's not going to be perfect at all like stop stop being a calling yourself a perfectionist it doesn't make sense just do the best you can mm-hmm. and be as honest as you can uh, but no, that's, that's a I don't healthy, know. that's healthy uh, and I think there's a mythology to how that book came about and now whether you like it or not there's a mythology around how Birdman came to be or not because it did work you know if it if it didn't work uh, that mythology no one would care and you know with Wallace there is a mythology a little bit in that the the core of the book was written in Syracuse New York in a bad winter and he holed himself up. He was in a tiny little apartment. It was cold. He had nothing else to do. He was sober. He had no substances. He had a girlfriend that he didn't. He couldn't really have a relationship with. And so there's this sort of image, right, as the tortured artist. And I don't think it's entirely accurate, but I think there's a little bit of truth to it. And mm. the the image of that artist whose biggest obstacle is himself, right? And I think Wallace felt that most acutely at that time in his life. And I think it's very hard to recreate later when you have a little bit of money and you have some comfort and you know you have a steady relationship. You can't manufacture that kind of crisis. Huh. Mm. You know, That's a good thought. To, to, write from, to write from a real point of pain and urgency and also frankly i mean as a writer maybe you can speak to this to me the key part is really having the time on your hands yeah I yeah mean, but if you if you have 15 other things to do and a day job and three kids to raise i don't know that you can write a thousand page novel at all <laughs> but but i would say that there are a lot of writers that have a lot of free time and they write bullshit like, right so i mean i mean it's i feel that that's what i'm saying i feel that even even within Wallace Wallace's work, I mean, if I read the the stories in Oblivion, even the the ones that we believe are personal, like like uh, Good Old Neon, for instance, uh, mm. I still I feel that he's in control, that he knows what he's doing, and he 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 does it in a he did it in a fantastic way. Like he's of course like he's an amazing writer. He did, but still. There is a sense of not controlling him just even though when he talked about it he sounded like he was in control, but we know that he was a little bit of a bullshitter when we talk about himself. <laughs> oh, yeah. um, and and actually we I don't I, I, I really don't know who he was, like even after reading his biography. I mean he was a complex character, but yeah. um I, I give myself that explanation about influences. That there's something he was trying to achieve something, but he wasn't achieving what he was expecting to achieve, and that's the beauty of it. Like, it's a—he uh, just wrote it, you know. It's just—it's like, like a vomit draft 
experience of writing that is three years, which is not much time for a thousand page novel Mm -hmm. that is complex. Like the plot is complex, even though I I say that it's not my favorite part of the book. (laughs) Um, Like he, he, you can sense that he worked a lot in playing with the, playing with the plot and giving all these clues. So you feel that you get it, but at the same time you don't get it completely. Yeah. And there is some manipulation in that, I would say, I, I believe. Um, so that, that's why I feel I feel very confused when people, like most people, most readers talk about the plot. Like they, they, they complain, they, when they don't like the book, or when they abandon the book, they always say, I didn't understand what was going on. And, and that confused me because, like for me, the way Wallace wrote, and specifically in that book, it's all about the sentence. It's, it's all about like one. If you don't live in that, if you don't see, if you don't participate in that with enjoyment or whatever, with interest, mm-hmm. like you cannot read that book. Like just don't read it. <laughs> the plot, yeah, the plot is not going to give you like it's not going to satisfy you, and and that's not the 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 key of the plot. And and I hate. Like, I remember listening to or seeing the video of this show in Australia that they analyzed the book, like a book club type of TV show. And and I remember this woman that that was complaining that he read the she read the whole thing and, and, and threw it away like because he, the, the plot wasn't solved and, and she didn't understand what was going on. And and then uh that she read the Aaron Swartz, I think was his, his name. The, yeah, the, yeah, Aaron Swartz. The, yeah. His theory about the the plot, and I remember I remember specifically she complained that she said that she didn't want to read a book that someone else had to explain to her, and, and, I, <laughs> and for me that was pretty revelatory about herself mostly because it's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. why can't you see that you were the problem and not the book? If another if another guy. <laughs> If, yeah, if another guy, if another person understood it and enjoyed it, I mean, and you didn't get the plot, then why is that the book's problem? Right. And I'm saying would you say that you've kind of experienced that reaction uh, to some of your work? Like uh, with Birdman, for example, the film ends and we're kind of, the audience is kind of like, what just happened? What do I make of this? Is that, is the ending really real? Is the ending... Exist, you know, in some kind of other well, space. Is that something yeah. that that translates to your work too? Yeah, I think with that specific example, yes, I think that I was surprised with how much trouble people have <laughs> with open endings. Right. It's like they cannot, and it's so it's so personal. Like it's it's like it's it's incredible. They cannot accept it. <laughs> cannot they cannot be at peace with it. So they they, they are bothered and they hate it, and so they hate the the piece of art because they hate that it's not solved. Right. <laughs> it's, it's, it's pretty peculiar. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Do you think that's what Wallace is talking about in the Larry McCaffrey interview where he says that like, uh, you know, big entertainment has trained us to be lazy. It's not that audiences are, are unintelligent or dumb. It's just that we've been trained to, to have a certain reaction to, to entertainment. And if, you know, literary entertainment does something outside of that easy expectation, um, that it's more of a problem of like conditioning rather than the problem of like, you know, a personal problem that your audience member has. I mean, it can be, I, I truly don't know. Uh, I'm still very naive in that sense. Um, 
I, I, that's why I'm saying that I'm surprised when I see these reactions, <laughs> when I have people that are really sad and really annoyed and really like mad about not getting the, the, the end, like not, right. <laughs> not knowing what, what happens. And they cannot just accept that and play with it and go home and try to explain that themselves what the ending is or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know what's the reason behind that. I feel it's, I feel probably it's like a, it has to do with human nature. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we, we are scared of not knowing. We're truly scared of not knowing, of not understanding. Mm-hmm. Your your thing about the sentence level and understanding what people are saying or the appeal of reading something at the sentence level, I, I come back to that a lot because Don DeLillo sort of writes that way. He's, to me, yes. the, the epitome of that. And Wallace, like you say, you could crack open infinite jest at any page and pull out a sentence that is just unbelievably complex and brilliant. And you can see the pleasure that he got out of it. And do you find that the stuff that you enjoy the most is the most valuable? When you're writing it, you say, I just had a blast, right? Is there a connection there? Because, you know, Wallace basically ask this question of DeLillo is that what, what happens when it's not fun for you anymore? Yeah. I mean, I think that the, the sentence level thing, it's, it's very it's essential for me in writing because for me, writing is a very basic <laughs> activity. Mm-hmm. It's just putting one word after the other, but which word like it's, like that's the process. Like it has to have weight. It has to have. It has to move forward. It has to be illuminating. It has to be, and so, so so we go back to the sentence. But I also what I said before in, in Infinite Jest specifically, which is the amount. It's like Wallace had this sort of like three sixty, peripheric consciousness of the room the characters are in and and how much is going on at the same time and. How can that be meaningful at moments, poetic in other moments, silly in other moments, funny, um, and all those possibilities? I think that the Lilo is fantastic in that. Like every sentence is a great sentence. Every every sentence has weight. Um, there are a lot of ideas that are like small ideas and larger ideas that are inserted in the specific sentences or visuals of it. I think that Wallace is more. Like for me, it's more like a like a Bosch painting. It's <laughs> a lot yeah. of things going on at the same <laughs> totally. time. Um, and also, the thing about Infinite Jest for me is that um, I'm sorry that I'm going back to Infinite Jest all the time, but don't it's ever just, apologize. For that. It's just it's a, <laughs> the, the, there is a there is a heart beating behind it, and I don't know why or how, but there is there's a human as, aspect in that book that I don't find in the Lilo much. Yeah. Um, I have this friend that he he would say that yeah that the, the Lilo is like reading the most fantastic sentence one after the other but you never care where they're going or what's going <laughs> on much. I don't agree with that completely, but yeah. there is something, there is a difference at least for me uh, between Wallace and the Lilo in that sense. Even though I think they're, I agree with you that they're both yeah 
fantastic sentence writer writers right. as as for me Beckett uh, is in, in specifically in that trilogy uh, not the trilogy because he didn't like the books so we call it trilogy but the, mm. the three novels the, the Molloy Malone dies and the Nemo yeah yeah like you're never gonna you're never gonna see like Mario in Candenza in one of Delillo's books or like a character like that you know um, that really that really kind of like uh, just like bleeding, bleeding heart humanity. Um, there's kind of like a, like you guys were saying, kind of like a dispassionate objectivity to Delillo's work. Well, and I wonder how much. Make, yeah. I wonder how much of that is a, is a generational thing. You know, a lot yeah. of a lot of these people we're talking about. You know, Delillo is like 80 years old now. Yeah, yeah. And you know, Nico, can you speak a little bit to that? Like what? resonated with you and Wallace it felt like he was of your generation even though like for me because I felt that way even though Wallace is a good 14 years older than me I mean I, I think how, that how, how old would have been today Wallace was born in 1962 62, so, so I, I'm bad at math math <laughs> <laughs> the three of us what did he start he to eight, four. 2016 minus 19 62. So it's gonna be, gonna be good. 54. Does that sound right? I used to calculate. I, I said that he was 14, and I still couldn't do the math. And I'm 40. Yeah, you're 40. I'm so 40. I, I said he was 41. So he, he, he's he's you know slightly of a different generation where you know he didn't have computers and he didn't have uh, you know computers in college and stuff like the internet and all this stuff. So he's not exactly of our generation. He's not exactly of DeLillo's generation. But does it matter in some way? And I think that voice, you know, even DeLillo recognized that, you know, Wallace in a way was coming to him like, oh, you're the master. But DeLillo didn't really have a lot of great, you know, advice for him. Uh, mm. and, and so I, th I think that there's a, a somewhat of a disconnect between generations and as there always is and that the worry to me is that you know i'm going to be the delillo fan 20 years from now or i'm going to be the wallace fan 60 years from now that really the culture has passed by mm -hmm. but wallace has, there's something unique about him that i would say is not in pension is not in delillo it's not in franz and it's not in philip roth it's not anywhere else in american literature Hmm. It's true, but at the same time, I, I never care about like the generate like 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 uh, Samuel Beckett wrote those three novels in the forties in in a in a tiny apartment in Paris in French. Like I have nothing to do with that. I truly I don't, and it's about a sort of human being, <laughs> first person that is walking around. With a bicycle, he kind of use like like the premise of it has nothing to do with me at all, and right. and it speaks so much to me, and and I think that in, like I never understood, and I don't know if this belongs to the same subject, but I'm going to use it. <laughs> I never understood this sort of idea, these labels that they put to Infinite Jest as as uh, as the movie, uh, as sorry as as the book of the internet generation or a hipster. Like, I, I don't even know what a hipster is. I, I, I feel sad every time that someone says that they are 
embarrassed of holding infant Jesus on this track. I don't understand what's uh, going yeah. on. Like I don't, I don't, I truly don't understand what what is going on. Like it's, that's another show. Cares? I I understand it, and uh, no, we've another, talked about this a fair yeah, bit. That, that's another show. I have strong opinions on that subject. But to me, I mean, a lot of it comes down to charisma, right? And that's something you can't define. And that, you know, you can have a movie star who is maybe not the most beautiful person in the world. You could have two people, you look at them, and one of them is more beautiful. But when they talk or when they live and when they act, the other person, like, just yeah. blows them away. And there's something about, it's indefinable, you know, I... I I see that in all the time in books. There's other books that were written in the 1940s or in 1996 that on their face are amazing and they're forgotten. And that's a whole nother conversation. But there's millions of books that are incredible and they'll never be read. They have no audience. They're out of print. And, and there are other books, you know, we're still reading John Milton and we're still reading Shakespeare. We're still reading all of these people long after they're dead, immortality in a way is, is a fake. And that, you know, someone that we think is great for 40 years is forgotten. It's a ruse. It's a ruse. There's no <laughs> such thing. And so I think if you write that way, you know, one, you can't care about that at all. You have to block all yeah. of that bullshit out. No, for sure. But when you read also, you cannot read a book believing that it's a book of a generation or it's a book that is going to talk to you because it was written one month before you were born. Like, who cares? <laughs> who cares? Like, it, ha it has to talk to you. Like, like the, the, the relationship you have with books that really communicate with you is, is so personal. Like, you don't even get that with family or friends. Hmm. Like, I'm, I feel closer sometimes to... to, to to Wallace than to my sister, you know, like I said, I, I, and I love my sister, but mm -hmm. the truth is the communication that happens with like, it's so personal. Like when you're reading yeah. Infinite Jest, it's that book was written for you. Like nobody yes. else is reading. It. Yes. You're the only person in the world reading that book. And yeah. that's the only, is the only thing that matters and nothing else matters. So w when they try to make these books representatives of, I don't know, of a generation or for a specific type of human being, mm. which just having a specific types of human being is stupid. Human being is stupid, but having a book that represents that is even more stupid. Like who, who cares and who can say that? You know, like, um, so, so I'm, I'm always confused about that side of it. And, and, and I, and I hope that it's going to, to end or, uh, or maybe it's, it's not as important. Like I hope that people are just reading it and, enjoying it if, if they mm -hmm. can because there, there, is, there are not many experiences out there in movies, theater, literature that are as, as profound and complex and, and beautiful as that, as that book, I think. Mm -hmm. I, I agree with you 100%, but I think that when he, he did want to somehow be equal to that moment in time and that he wanted to represent you know, some kind of massive, maximal view of contemporary culture at the time. Yeah, and, and I think that, I think that yeah, and I think that that's probably the, that's the, the consequence of that are the worst parts of the books, probably. You know, like yeah. this, trying to, to he, he had a subject, like, you know, like he had a thing that he wanted to talk about, or he had a, like, like that's, that's a little bit, 
in a way that those books are successful, sometimes it's tricky for the rest. Like Ulysses was the same, like he wanted to change literature. Right. And the asshole made it happen. <laughs> like, you know? like, and, and that, for other writers or artists or whatever, it's, it's not great because that's not, at, at least I believe that's not where you should write anything. Like you should write from, from somewhere else. You should write from, from not knowing, from, from, from the, this sort of place of discovery. And uh, like you have to embrace it. That's why, like even when I, when I hear, and I, and I love George Saunders, and I'm reading his new novel, Lincoln in the Bardo. Oh, are you? We don't, I don't have that yet. Uh, and and it's, it's wonderful. But every time I listen to him talk about the, how he writes, and I feel that that relates to a lot of workshops here in America. Of, and I don't know, you can, you can tell me if I'm wrong, but from, from books I read or biographies or whatever, that they sort of train you into that sense of that writing, the writing was taking out, that you have to take out and pull it and, and find that word that really matters. And, and at one point, I think, and, and, and going back to Carver, he was saying his collaboration with, with his with his editor had something to do with that also with taking out what is unnecessary. And, I, and every time I hear about, I hear that, uh, it worries me a little bit because uh, I don't know, like I would love to read the 160 page version of Civil Warland in Bad Decline, of that story mm-hmm. specifically. You know, the one that he wrote at first and he took everything out except of what is left in the final version. Mm. Like you ha- like yeah, I, I well, truly I was a big fan of that. in the imperfection of it. Like the, of of showing yourself completely, not just the smart or classy or you know you know what I mean? I, uh, I don't yeah. know. No, 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 absolutely. And I think there is a trend um with professionalizing literature you know, because there's so much of it, and there's so much MFAs that that it becomes very easy to standardize what gets published. And those big, sloppy, messy things where oftentimes reality is allowed to sneak out, you know, it's not polished. And to me, that better reflects a lot of reality. But those are not, those are really hard to publish. And, you know, Wallace had to make it a sort of marketing angle to publish a thousand-page novel, and yeah. and had to agree to do a lot of publicity stuff that he probably didn't want to do, um, but that's that's the exception. It's getting harder to tell someone, um, you know, okay, it's not an experimental novel, it's not a niche, you know, foreign thing, but you know, because that's only going to sell five hundred copies or five thousand copies, and Infinite Jest worldwide has sold like a million copies. So it's a successful thing, and it's super long and complex, and that's a very rare combination, you know, right. even for a publisher to to put out. So, so that's why a lot of people don't write it. You know, if that stuff sold all the time, I think a lot of people would say, "Oh, we need to publish more thousand-page novels." <laughs> but most of them don't sell, and you know that that's the problem. Well, because most of them are not even a jest. I mean, that's. <laughs> They're crap. That, that, right? <laughs> that you're writing a 1,000 page novel doesn't. I, I mean, I read a few of the ones that came out after Infinite Jest, and I like a few. I mean, I like the instructions. Yes, good. I, okay, I, liked, I was going to ask. 
I like a naked singular singularity. I don't know if you read that one. There's Sergio de la Pava. No, I, I, I got that in the mail when he self, you know, he had to self publish that before it, he couldn't get a publisher. Hmm. I mean, it's incredible, but they're still, I mean, next to Infinite Jest, you know, like they're, I don't know, like it's, no, it's a, Infinite Jest is the benchmark, right? And, and, that is sort of a blessing and a curse. In a way, we have read it and we say, damn, this is, nothing can compare. And then the flip side, the bad thing is like, damn, nothing can compare. You know, yeah. I've been mm. looking for 20 <laughs> years for something like this. <laughs> and every book book that comes out, and really, like I said, the, the whole Wallace listserv that I've run since 2002 is a spinoff of the pension list because there's people waiting, you know, pension went through a phase that every 10 years would publish a novel and people would wait around for 10 years saying, mm. what's going to be the next, who's going to be the new Thomas Pinchon? And mm. Wallace was in that group. And, but it was such an exception that they said, you know, Wallace, you guys, you fans have got to go somewhere else. You go over there, make your own list. So that, so <laughs> Yeah, and people compare everything because of it's, the sheer length. Yeah, and it's also like this sort of market thing. I imagine that they have to again like build these boxes. Like you see, they have to put put you somewhere. You have to belong somewhere so they can sell you, or they can imagine what what the audience could be. And and for me, that's a pain in the ass. But I, I don't care. I mean, they they're, they're doing their job. I, I don't know how to market anything. <laughs> uh, I have no Facebook, no Twitter. I, I don't know how to market myself. I mean, it's a miracle <laughs> that I'm talking to you, and 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 the Oscar was even like a joke, <laughs> in my face. But the truth is, which uh, Oscar though? Because there's two now, right? No, no one. For the Revenant. No, Re Revenant didn't didn't win Best Picture. <laughs> right, but you were I was, I was a I was a co-producer. Okay, <laughs> but gotcha. in 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 Birdman, there's a you know there's a debate with his daughter about this very issue that she says you know well there's yeah, a, you don't matter because yeah you're not you're not online right yeah right yeah yeah and do you feel like that sometimes that there is some other world out there that you just you just don't sure. have, don't have time for or... so you see so your next president. Of the mm -hmm. Did you say my next president? <laughs> yeah, I'm not. I'm not from here. He's not mine, man. I was. Re I was really hoping we could make it through the whole episode without. I know. I, I thought. About. Yeah, I knew it would come. Ah, so you can cut it out. <laughs> no, but I mean the the Twitter thing. I, I think what I find fascinating about it is. There was a time with Wallace studies in particular, or Wallace fandom, where any time there was a piece of news that came up, someone emailed it to someone else. And now that same person would take that same piece of news and tweet it out. And it, it really has replaced like a big chunk of our conversation. Right, yeah. And no, I, I'm not, I'm, I agree. I'm not. Yeah. yeah diminishing it at all i just don't use it because it's another worry like i don't want to have another worry like <laughs> thinking what to write and, and the truth is i don't need as, as a as a screenwriter which is my job like the the thing that that i do to pay the rent mm -hmm. um i don't need to promote myself in that way like it's something that happens internally you know within the 
the the the movie world or whatever you yeah, want to call it industry um literature i have a like a short story book that was published many years ago i have two novels that i'm trying to publish now um, oh, cool. they are pretty weird so it's hard to find the, the right <laughs> place for them and they're in spanish and oh yeah uh well, and I didn't mean to defend it so much as just to say this is the reality. It's changing, no, it's true. Yeah. That, that's what I'm saying. Like, yeah. it, it's true. It, it exists, and that's the case, and that happens. And Facebook is very useful for a lot of people. Also, yeah. it, uh, I, I also feel that Facebook is destroying art <laughs> <laughs> because I feel that it's so smart that that Facebook is so smart because it gave it gave every it made every everyone the artist. You know, you you are the artist, and you can show your art, even though you have no talent at all. And I'm not, there's a lot of people that have talent, of course, but there's a lot of people that don't have talent, and now they can believe that they have, and they can believe that everybody wants to see whatever they're doing, even if it's a picture of their dog eating a banana or whatever. But the truth is, people are going there to to spend their to distract themselves instead of watching reading a book or, or watching a film and and maybe I'm overreacting a little bit mm. but I feel that that that, that is happening a little bit like that mm. that that's the first choice to no. choose to relax and, and, and instead of doing yeah. something that can entertain you and take you to another place but at the same time has some complexity in it or Mm-hmm. I sound like an old man. Sorry. No, no, no. <laughs> you sound very like mentally healthy to me, and that. <laughs> Thank you. Know, you. I, 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 I between that and like curmudgeon. T- t- curmudgeon. Tell that to my wife. <laughs> <laughs> but do, but uh, don't you find? I mean, you still have the internet on your laptop, right? Jonathan Franzen basically has the same argument you have, and then says that you know when he writes, he turns off the internet altogether or has, you know, there's a program called Freedom. Have you heard of this? And you turn on this program and it you can't connect to the internet for a set number of hours. Oh, really? And allows <laughs> you the freedom to write. Um, but I feel the internet is different. slightly different. I feel, I mean, at least for me, like, I, I have like three, four websites that I go, and it's true that sometimes when I cannot work, I go back and I'm seeing the same website that I checked 20 minutes ago, believing that there's going to be some (laughs) miraculous new thing (laughs) going on. And, but the truth is I don't spend much time because I don't know, like I I don't find much in it, but I use it a lot as a tool. Um, I, I, uh, well, of course, when I write in English, I use it a lot. I'm like, I think like Wallace, Wallace mother would have so much fun playing with my English and correcting me because the truth <laughs> is that I depend on, I have to check everything. Like that's the truth. Like I, I think that I write better than I talk <laughs> in English, but uh, still I have, I never remember anything. I never remember it's on the table or in the table or at the table or it's just, it's just painful in that sense. And I would say that even if it's a minor reason that helps me a lot to have that at hand and I don't have to go to to a dictionary or whatever, or, or grammar dictionary, but but I, I don't find it as distracting in that sense. That is so fascinating that I will spend the whole day in, in the internet looking at things. Right. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, that's, I mean, your, your language thing, do you want, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Because your English is still like miles better than any kind of muddling in, in any language that I could do. <laughs> and, you know, I just read this book by, um, Jhumpa Lahiri about writing in Italian and mm. she became obsessed with the Italian language and just felt like she wanted to live in Italy and write in Italian and so she did, but she writes a lot about how how much of a struggle it is and how she will really never feel like a native, you know, in that language and that she does a lot of translating in her head. You know, how, how do you feel like that and comfortable being, you know, in New York where you, yeah, could, you well, probably could speak Spanish? You know? Yeah, I, I think that... Um... I mean, I'm, I got much better in the last... I, I went to a, to a high school that was bilingual, that I had English. In the, it was a pain in the ass because I had Spanish in the morning and then I had the same subjects but in English. So I had <laughs> geografia and then geography, mm -hmm. mathematicas and then math. So it was like right. from 8 in the morning to 5 p.m. or something. And so that gave me a good base or mm -hmm. whatever. But in these last years... I got much better. I wrote a book of short stories of very, very, uh, very short stories in English, and I did it in in my free time between episodes, just to have fun with the language uh, and and to practice. But um, it's still it's hard. It's it's very hard and. And it's it's not hard because just because of the specifics of the language of the of the 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 exterior part of it, which is just knowing the words or the prepositions or whatever. It's hard because of the culture. Um, like I, I, that's why I need to collaborate with with an American writer if I'm working here because you know I, in the show there is a 16 year old girl from ohio like i had no idea who she is like the truth is <laughs> and and I, and I can put my and i can put myself in her a lot and i think that's that's a good way of writing always but at the same time i feel distant and i need i need to yeah i need someone to sort of to bring me closer to those to those characters also to the for the colloquial you know for the dialogue and like I miss some of the color, of course. I can, I can write a correct, like a good dialogue, but it will miss some of the of the spice of of the language, you know. Yeah, I I have one um, kind of final question for you, and then I'll let Dave ask a question, and then I'll let you talk. But uh, you mentioned back at the, you know, at the beginning of this conversation. Um, uh, another writer that you admired in Argentina, Alberto Lessica. Mm -hmm. Could you could you recommend us some other stuff that you've read that you think is really uh, worth sharing? That you know you would you would give to someone else and say you would really like this book. Besides Beckett, you've mentioned Beckett. Um, I am I a disaster with these questions. I don't know why. Like I always get like this blank. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean to put you on the spot here, but I'm this I'm, blank space. I'm just curious, uh, you know, or or a movie, you know, if there's some other no, stuff, no, no. movies, no, or no. TV, anything. I mean, let me think about. I mean, there are there are a lot of books that I like, and I don't know why I cannot remember any. any, any. 
I mean, I, you're talking about Spanish language, like Argentinian? I, any of it. Or in, in, in any language? Any, any. <laughs> okay. Um, okay, one of my favorite books is Coming Through Slaughter. Uh, Michael Daji, you know how you pronounce his last name? Andiche? Michael Andiche? Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's a Cana uh, Canadian writer there. He's Canadian, yeah, yeah. yeah. He is. I've never actually read anything by him. but I, Okay, good. Good to know. Uh, I, you know, I've read like six of his books, but not that one. So I've got to read oh, really? it now. That's, that's his first one. Uh, I've got to read it now. Just missed it, Matt. Damn. Um, <laughs> uh, I say Andachi, by the way. Andachi. Oh, yeah. Andachi, yeah. There is a there is a Mexican writer that I, that I like that is called Mario Bellatin. Oh, you, you're my man! I just wrote a long <laughs> thing about him. Yeah, I yeah. love him. I love him. Yeah, he's he's, he's amazing. One armed. <laughs> he's a Sufi. He's Peruvian. He's born in Peru. Lives in Mexico. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and you know he writes a lot of really weird experimental stuff. So it sounds like right up your alley. Mm. Yeah, and I think yeah. there there is. There's already a, a bunch of translation, no? A lot, oh, yeah, a bunch yeah. Of he's been, translated in English. I think all his big stuff. He's a, um, a beauty salon. He has a book called his first yeah, book. Yeah, that was his first book. Yeah. yeah. Salon. Yes. yeah. And then um, he, he has a new book that I wrote a long review of called The Large Glass, which he says is an autobiography, three autobiographies in a little tiny book. And like <laughs> none of them are really true. <laughs> You know, but then you're like, well, kind of some of them are, you know, I mean, in one of them, he says he's a German woman, right? <laughs> but it's an autobiography and it's like, wow, I guess. Oh, that's cool. I mean, you have to know him in a way to, to know that that's, it's the whole thing is made up, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I love, I love his work. Huh, that's cool. Nico, Just have you read, have you read yeah. uh, any Salvador Placencia, the, the People of Paper? He's yeah. a Mexican writer. Uh, it was translated into English and published by McSweeney's, also uh, who also published the instructions. You mentioned when you mentioned the novels you were working on that were in Spanish and also like very experimental and weird. That's the first book that came to my mind. So uh, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on that one. Okay. Or yeah. Bolaño. I got to ask about Bolaño. If sure. Can. Yeah. Of course. Well, I mean, I, I'm. I love Bolaño. I mean, <laughs> I think go. I think he's I think he's uh, he wrote a lot. And I, and I don't love everything. I think there is, he's a writer, there is, that, for, at least for me, there's a huge distance between the good books and the, for me, not so good books. Mm -hmm. um, but... Um, uh, he's hit or miss. I mean, I, I would agree with you. There's I, some books I would actively steer people away from. <laughs> like book two yeah, of 2666. Like, well, no. Fernando Pessoa. Fernando Pessoa for me is another... Like writer, like the book of the Squire is yes. It's a very important book. Um, but yeah, I remember because one of those writers also Polanyi, or I don't know how much he published in his lifetime, how much they found in his computer, and then they published. I mean, of course, I read it first a while ago, and the Detectives Salvajes and 2666. See, si. and and those books were amazing. I mean, when I read them, they were the most important thing for me. I mean, they were, they were huge, but, and, and he, and he was a Borges fan and Borges. 
influence. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So, but right now, I must say, and I know that you're a huge fan also, yeah. Matt of Bolaño, yeah. and, I, and I love him. I must say that I don't know why it's harder for me to go back to him. I mean, two, 2000, how you, how you Tw- I say 2666. 2666. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, yeah. that book has, has moments that are amazing even the part that almost everybody complain about which is the part of the depths yeah yeah that's the, what i it's meant it's by book two. yeah <laughs> I, I don't understand that's another thing that i don't understand i like was gonna, yeah i was never turned off by that section at all it's i mean fascinating. you're gonna yeah. stop reading it and it's just a list of murders and there's it's i don't know it's it's another one of those magical literary things that happens every once in a while but like i i think that wallace and i don't want to compare i think it's just has nothing to do with anybody can read whatever they want but it's just another he's in another level i think he's mm-hmm. i think that bolaño still existed in a previous way of writing that wallace broke completely mm-hmm. he took it to a different place i think well and i think what what interests me more about bolaño is his influence on this next generation which seems really exciting and that there are a lot of young writers who you know have actively rejected his influence and moved past it and just latin american literature in general seems more vibrant because of that um i was gonna when you were talking about argentinians i was gonna mention andre newman who Mm -hmm. uh, i just Got to meet here in Texas earlier. Yeah, he was a friend of Bolaño. A few, no, I think. Yeah, a few weeks ago, and uh, got to talk Bolaño stories with him here in Texas, which was amazing. Um, but the people like that who, you know, are, are still writing to me that that's a big issue too. Of all, you know, in a way, like all my heroes are dead, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? And, and it, it matters very much to me if I read something that just comes out. You know, like Saunders, you mentioned Saunders or Zadie Smith, and it comes out and it's like, I know that that person is out there writing on something today or tomorrow, and, I, and I'm alive at the same time. That does carry some weight for me. Uh, how do you yeah. feel about that? Yeah, at least I would say it's a different experience than writing, a, like reading a, a dead writer than a living writer. I don't know why there is, there's something different about it. And... And I think Bolaño became a huge thing in in Spanish in the Spanish language world, like a huge, huge thing, like like Maradona size. Yeah, I don't know, yeah. know Maradona, but por supuesto. So, so, so I, I think that's that's tricky for what's come, what come next, um, because I mean, it's just it's 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 what you what we're saying about Wallace. Like people start putting him in this place with it's not real um like the same thing happened with Wallace you no know, after he died like like who knows who he was like I don't know I don't know if he was a saint he was an asshole like I truly don't know I don't care but with Bolaño it's a little bit of the same like uh, he he became this image of the poet you know, like the writer he never had money and uh, he he didn't have much education. I mean, he, he was self-taught a lot. He read a lot and he knew a lot about literature, but he never went to college or whatever. So he had this sort of aura, you know, like the poet, the the, the 
poeta maldito, I don't know how you call that in, in English, but um, so that becomes a tricky influence because it's unreal. It's not real. And the thing that I would take about from Bolaño is that he wrote his best, his best books come from himself. It's from personal experience, from trying to understand what happened in his life, what happened with him, who he is, who his friends were, and he's playing with that and he's trying to sort of find a story within that and and that that's what every writer should do I feel like just doesn't matter doesn't matter what is going to happen with the book where it's going if it's going to be read in 10 years or in one month doesn't matter if it's going to be published if it's not going to be published I mean we all want to be read that's why we're putting words on paper we're not stupid mm-hmm. but <laughs> but at the same time when you write you have to be you have to be in that place where you're working hard and being serious, but at the same time not. You're playing. You're trying to. You're trying to find this thing about yourself that 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 is better than yourself. That this this thing that belongs to you, but at the same time it's not you. Is that? And I don't know how it happens, but it happens. And sometimes you read something in, in, in that you you wrote, and you go like, "What is that? I, I I don't know who wrote that. It's so much better than." <laughs> what I am, and you have to f- search for that, and just just not not think about the consequences, and yeah, and just be very disrespectful. I think that's the key. You have to make fun of Dostoevsky, of <laughs> Shakespeare, be irreverent. To, yeah, I mean Cervantes wrote Quixote, making fun of the novels that were written at his time. You know, like, and he he wrote the most important, at least historically, most important novel in, in the Spanish world, but. It was the least serious attempt ever. And so you never know. Like, it's just, you have to sit down and, and do it if you want to do it. And if you don't want to do it, don't do it because nobody cares. There are a lot of books out there. There are a lot of movies. And 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 if it's, I don't know. Like, just, but if you feel like doing it, that's, that's all that matters. Well, you have to live your passion, too. And, you know, if someone told Wallace, drop the whole tennis thing. You know, no one, can, no one's going to read a book about tennis. Then you know, infinite. And it jest. makes sense. Yeah. I mean, that's a good note. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. That's the beauty of infinite jest. Yeah. Like the like, if you start talking about infinite jest specifically, <laughs> uh, the, the the sources he used and he put together, like it's anyone would say you're 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 crazy. It's like you will fail. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> It's the most wonderful thing ever. So I, I'm going to say, like, for going back to Berman, and this is just, I don't know, now, now I like comparing Infinite Jest to Berman. <laughs> yes. <laughs> makes me feel important. <laughs> but it before is. shooting the film, when we had the screenplay and we had the cast, before shooting the film, like, Alejandro went to have dinner with Mike Nichols. Oh, yeah. Say, I want to meet with a, an expert in comedy. And, that, and Mike Nichols told him, don't do it. It will be the worst thing ever. Like a comedy with no cuts, makes no sense. It's going to be a disaster. Nobody cares about the theater world. It's an, uh, an insider movie. I don't know if that's the, the right term. Like it's a movie about right. people that make that. Yeah, nobody will care. Like he, Alejandro was petrified after the dinner. He, he, <laughs> he called me and he didn't know what to do. Uh, so the truth is that you never know. And I'm sad that Mike Nichols died before watching Berman. Ah, oh. Because I will, I will have enjoyed that 
<laughs> the sweet vindication of of uh winning an oscar for it mm. i suppose <laughs> I, I asked my last question like 30 minutes ago dave yeah um, that's true i got a, i got a quick one then right. to, to wrap up uh so nico i'm not sure if you if you are f- are friends with michael sure or not but uh if you have any kind of entry point with him to to work on the infinite jest film project i think you would be a strong candidate for uh, for being part of that adaptation. I mean, that, I read. I read, <laughs> no, I, I read your conversation with them. Um, it was in the conference, no? Oh um, yeah, yeah. The the uh, with Emily and Josh about their their play. Oh yeah, yeah. What are you yeah. talking about? Uh, Michael Schur is it ha- is the director who actually has the rights to to the film. Oh no 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 no! I, 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 I don't know. <laughs> I think that's impossible. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. That's a recipe for disaster. It's like, uh, because... <laughs> well, you know, someone said that about Birdman not too long ago, so... It's true, yeah. No, but <laughs> but I think that, no, I mean, it's it's impossible to recreate even the feeling of it, I feel. That. And, 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 and as I said before, I don't think that the plot is the strongest... Right. The, the strongest side of... of and maybe I'm wrong, eh, but that's my feeling. That I don't think it's that's the strongest side of, of Infinite Jest and... When you're doing a movie, like the plot is essential, mm-hmm. and I- anybody that tries to write an, ex- an adaptation will have to focus on that. And 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 it's it's a literary literary novel. I mean, it's I try to listen to it, and I think the the, the it's it's amazing what Sean yeah. uh, Sean Pratt yep. did. The recording is amazing, but it's still it I don't know like I, it's it belongs on the page. Um. It's 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 I don't know. Did did you try to see the the Ulysses version they did, like the movie they did? I don't know in the sixties or something. Oh, it's awful. It's <laughs> awful. But it's just how like it just it's impossible. It's a <laughs> literary experience. So some books should never be adapted as, and this would be a, a strong candidate for that. You think? <laughs> I think the best thing is to get a crappy book and make a fantastic <laughs> movie, as Stanley Kubrick, the master of all time, did. <laughs> almost every time just get a well The Shining was a good novel but it was you know what I mean it's like it was a, yeah, yeah. Like a thriller like a well-written thriller but he made it right. a work of art and that's right. the base the best I think <laughs> equation <laughs> awesome well that's a that's a great final thought Nico thanks for that we want to thank you so much again for coming on for uh, for sharing your thoughts on Wallace and literature and, and your own work and film uh, I, you mentioned at the beginning uh, near the beginning of your first uh, phone call f- with Alejandro, and and just kind of being like, "Word, we we get to go talk to him in Mexico." Like, are you kidding me? And uh, when Matt and I got your email uh, last, or I guess in October, we kind of felt the same way uh, that you that you reached out and contacted us and said you like the show, and we were both like, "This is pretty amazing." And I wonder if uh, wonder if Nico would want to come on and talk about some of this stuff. So we're very happy that it worked out. So thanks again. No, I mean, thank you. I love it, and I, and I love the podcast, and I think it's yeah. it's great that it exists, and I hope that you find a lot of people to talk about this, whoever they are, to talk about Wallace, and and I'm, it was a pleasure to be here. I hope I made sense, but I didn't sound <laughs> as an asshole. No, and, no, no. And, and that somebody at least 
got some entertainment from this conversation. Yeah, absolutely. It was great. We had a blast talking to you. And we always say this, but like we could easily keep talking for another hour or so, but we don't want to take up more of your time because it's, like, I think, like 11.30 p.m. your time right now on the East Coast. So. Yeah. And my wife is waiting for us to have dinner. So yeah. Oh, to see wow, okay. Face. Lo siento mucho. <laughs> well, All right. So uh, they, you're, not they, on, you're not on social media, mm. so people can't find you on Twitter. Uh, but they can go watch your films. So uh, Birdman, The Last Elvis, and Beautiful. And we look forward to your next uh, to your show. Do you, can you give us the title of that, Nico, so we can watch out for it? The 1%. The 1%. 1%. Yeah. Awesome. Well, and it's not cool to say you're a fan of stuff, but like I'm a fan of your work. So I'm, <laughs> I'm, 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 a, I'm a fan, fan of yours. <laughs> Feeling is mutual, my friend. Uh, yes. It's been it's been a pleasure to talk with you, and just thank you for uh, sharing this time with us. It's been great. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you. We thank appreciate you. it so much, uh, Matt. Where can people find us on the things? We're at Concavity Show on Twitter, Concavity Show at gmail.com Email us, please. We love getting the emails. We do, we do. Um, we're on Instagram and Facebook, Concavity Show. I think we'll find us at all those places. But um, the email has really been great. I, yeah. I've never gotten anyone email me for something I've written. But for the <laughs> podcast, it's been uh, incredible, the number of people who have emailed us. So we really enjoy that. Please, yeah, email, please email us. Yeah. So Jake Reagan, Jake Reagan has been emailing us lately about uh, the question of drugs and infinite jest. That's been great to talk about. And we've heard from our friend uh, Colby, no relation Faulkner, a little bit lately too. So Carolee shout out to those guys. Oh, shit. <laughs> stickers. If you want a sticker, look, oh, at, yeah. our, look at our website. Uh, Nico, <laughs> we're going to send you some stickers that say the Great Concavity. Yes, perfect. Uh, we have some with, stickers. With Robin's art on them. Yeah, they're, they're cool little stickers. If you want some, go and check out our website, uh, greatconcavity.podbean.com. Um, they're really cool, and I, I think they turned out well, so I'm happy with the stickers. Yeah, and I, and I have enough to last for, like, a, another century. So. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is – I just – I forgot that we haven't even gotten to actually talk about that on the show yet. It's our first, so. our first moment. So, yeah, if you, if you like what we're doing and you want to – Send a few bucks our way to help uh, cover our, our podcasting costs. We greatly appreciate that. Right on, guys. Until well, thank next you so time. much again, Nico. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. Yeah. All right. Adios. Kept repeating. Kept repeating myself. so quiet for me anyone there oh shit oh jesus okay Who? i'm back i'm back i hear you yeah i was like in a deep hole or something there i don't know what happened <laughs> can you guys hear me okay see see this, this, right. this is too much I mean, this, <laughs> band, the Skype. I, I don't know if i can see it's a lot of it's a lot of pieces in the <laughs> yeah, juggling <shit>. area. <laughs> It's not my strong suit either. Let's, let's, let's meet next week in Austin. Or something. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Have someone else film it. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. <laughs>